Hello and welcome to our podcast, Minds Over Matter. My name is Joseph Lopez. I'm a local MFT intern and safe school professional and introducing my co-host. Hi, I'm Sandy Miller. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and also a safe school professional. And we hope you enjoy this broadcast. Hi, and welcome to our podcast today. We've got our special guest, Tony Taravis. Hey, Tony, are you the dean, the student advocate, or the restorative justice coordinator? Uh, I'm going to say if the answer is E, all of the above. Perfect. Okay, so give us a little bio about you real quick, Tony. A bio about me. Well, this will be my seventh, eighth year in education and my seventh, sixth year with Somerset. No, oh, seventh year with Somerset. Yeah, that's about right. I don't know. They're starting to blur together. I'm not like Miss Nataro with like 29 years, but, um, and I started in the field of education as a media arts specialist. So I taught a lot of technology-based classes. Um, my first year I taught K-8, so I did get to teach as a specialist for K-5 and then moved up from there um, and focused primarily on middle school classes. So I spent a few years teaching just middle school media arts, audio, video production, that sort of stuff, Photoshop, web design, um, cool. game design. Yep. And then from there at Somerset Stephanie, I've moved into the student success advocate role, which is pretty cool. And explain what that is for people who don't know that. Um, so the student success advocate role is really one that it, it fills the role of a traditional dean, quote unquote dean. I'm doing air quotes. You can't see them, but they're there. <laughs> um, but it, it it's all of those things where, I, yes, I do handle discipline and I do deal with students when they're not making the best choices, but it's a lot more than that. We also spend a lot of energy and effort and time into how we can be proactive and help kids be successful by changing behaviors before the behaviors happen. So really looking at kids that are struggling um, with whatever it is that's going on in their life and figure out what we need to do to step in and help support them and give them opportunities to be successful um, before they make a mistake or even during a mistake or after a mistake, right. all of the above. Yeah, in this system, um, I was kind of brought on to, I'm new here as an SSP, but this idea of restorative justice kind of was something that you and I talked about when I was first interviewed here. Maybe do you mind talking a little bit about that and how it's implemented in the school? Sure, yeah, and restorative justice is a, it's, it's kind of a newer trend in education as far as being like the new hot button topic that everybody likes to talk about. But really it's been around for a while. Restorative practices um, started in, I mean, the place that gets the most credit for it is Oakland, California, Oakland Unified School District. They started recognizing that they were having a lot of issues and there's a, a whole terminology called the school to prison pipeline that goes on where kids, we have data to support it's basically all evidence driven. This has been researched over the last 30 years extensively that how kids perform in, in school and whether or not they graduate high school has a huge impact on their likelihood of ever being in prison. So, And isn't that true that like they, they develop prisoners based on school suspensions at a certain grade level? Yeah, they, they really do look at at suspension rates um, and things like that by by certain grades and they can use that as a predictor based on this research data to determine approximately what the potential future prison population might be in a given area that's crazy yeah 
It really is. And that's why you see initiatives in the state of Nevada like Read by Grade 3, uh, because we have a lot of evidence that supports that if a student is not reading on grade level by the third grade, that their chances of not graduating high school goes down exponentially. And then that would therefore follow that that increases their likelihood of potentially being incarcerated at some point. So I'm still trying to really grasp what restorative justice means, and I really appreciate the background, but maybe do you have like an example of how you utilize that at school or a general way I could understand what it is from a bystander perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So keeping that, that background is important because, again, at the end of the day, if we're focused on, you know, breaking that school to prison pipeline, it really comes down to um, human connection and interconnectedness. And so restorative practices and restorative justice as a whole really takes the idea of traditional discipline and flips it sideways, I guess, is the way that I always envision it. Um, when students um, break a rule in a traditional sense, they might be punished for something. So that, that's really the thought process and the traditional approach to discipline is student A does something and breaks a rule, student A should have a consequence or be punished for that rule break. And that's kind of where zero tolerance came in, because that was a big, big thing for many years in education. Yes, absolutely. Zero tolerance or progressive discipline more recently, like as you do minor things, eventually the consequences get more severe, ultimately leading to suspensions and that sort of thing. Um, restorative practices and restorative justice looks at, instead of looking at what rules are broken, Again, I'm using air quotes. I keep doing visual things on a podcast. It's <laughs> super great. Um, it looks at, instead of looking and focusing on what rules are broken, restorative practice looks at how relationships are being harmed or how students are interacting with each other and damaging relationships, either with an individual or with a community. So when we think about those student, uh, student relationships and that interconnectedness that we want to build, um, if a student gets in an argument with another student, instead of saying, hey, you pushed this kid, that's against the rules, now you have to be punished, you get detention, or you sit out from recess. Right. We focus on like, well, how, how did you get to the point where you pushed this kid? Now this relationship between the two kids is damaged and harmed, and the ultimate goal is, how do we repair and restore that relationship between those two students? Because once the relationship is repaired and stored, and, and we've kind of healed that harm that was caused between them, the likelihood of a repeat incident goes down right. a lot. Well, the um, way I was used to, you know, growing up, you know, if, if, you know, I hit a kid on the playground, my teacher would probably make me say sorry. The kid would say, I forgive you. Okay, you're good. And now I get in trouble. But I'd always feel labeled now that I'm in detention as that bad kid. And, and you know, of course, speaking as, a, as a, uh, an example here, but I'd be more likely to, I would think, do said behavior in the future because I'm already that bad kid. Right. Yeah, labeling and punishment we know doesn't work because we look at the prison system and that would, it's a great example. If the prison system, if punitive punishment worked, we wouldn't have any prison systems. Okay. They'd go to jail once, learn their lesson and leave, right? And the school suspension is kind of the same way. Yeah, well, I mean, you typically the kids that get suspended are the kids that need to be here the most. Absolutely. So, you know, sending them home um, and who knows what home situation you're sending them to. Maybe they have a parent at home and maybe there will be some consequences at home and, and there will be a change in behavior. But you know, as you guys were kind of alluding to, we know that um, negative um, punitive consequences and negative interactions is not the best way to teach behavior. Um, think about a dog, you know, when we're teaching animals, 
in which essentially humans are still animals at, at a basic level. Absolutely. When we're teaching behavior, there's a lot of evidence in psychology that says positive reinforcement is a lot more effective than negative reinforcers. So if your dog, you know, does something you don't want it to do, hitting your dog doesn't teach the dog. So in the same sense, if we, if a kid makes a mistake and they are sent home and suspended, that doesn't necessarily have any correlation to what they did. So back to the example that Joseph brought up, you know, if, if he gets into an argument with another student on the playground and yes, the teacher might have them have a conversation. Yes, he might apologize. All those things are fantastic. And that's part of the restorative practice to make amends. But then to, to take it that step further and say, now, now you get detention or you're suspended and you have to go home. Um, how is that teaching him how to handle that situation differently next time? And so how would, how would you handle that if you were the dean at my school at that time? Yeah, I think the important thing is that the two students, you and the other student that you were affected or that you affected, you guys tell me what the, what the answer and the solution is. You know, kids are brilliant at that. Oh, and they're much harder on themselves than, than anyone else could ever be. Yeah, and so we ask them regularly, hey, what do you think you need to do to make this right? And then that is a conversation that has to happen between both parties involved. So you might have an idea of what you want to do and are willing to do to make it right. And the person that that relationship has been harmed with might have a very different idea. And the only way, so if we just go with like, hey, you need to be suspended or detention, that may not even be what the other kid is looking for or seeking the other party. And I think it's important right here to talk about the goal too is not forgiveness. Right. And restorative justice. So the, Joseph's victim doesn't have to forgive him. Correct. But we just have to repair that relationship. Yeah, we just have to reach a point where, where we can, um, if nothing else, live and let live, right? right? Just be able to walk around and see each other and not think about revenge or retaliation or anything like that, but get to a point where this situation happened. We try to understand each other's perspectives and have some, some level of empathy for each other. Um, that's why that, that focusing on those relationships and, and building interconnectedness between students um, is, is vital because that's how communities thrive. And, and this, that's really the cornerstone of this whole program is relationships, correct? Yes, absolutely. And that goes, it's very tribal. Like it's rooted. That's why I say this is not anything new. Societies have been using res restorative practices. Um, they may not have called it restorative practices, but as long as humans have been, you know, living together and civilization, uh, they, it, yeah, there were some civilizations that used more punitive things than others. But when you think about it um, with your kids at home, if your kid makes a mistake, you don't get to suspend them <laughs> and banish them to the backyard. Now, some parents might wish during distance learning that they could suspend them and send them over to the school for a few hours. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Well, we don't know how effective that would be. <laughs> we do not know that. We have no data on that. Yeah, definitely. But it really, I think, alludes to a point when dealing with children who uh, may be experiencing trauma as well, you want to make sure that um, you're that secure base, I think, for them. And if they're always afraid of their school administrators, they're less likely to be learning, to be attentive. And the goal, I think, for you know Joseph and, and my victim, so to speak, in that example, were to get both of those students back onto the learning program and to give them both what they need. And you're right, the victim, that might not be what they need is, you know, somebody to uh, go to detention, so to speak. Yeah. And, and kids, that's why I say the, the best person to tell us what they need usually is the, is the individual that's been harmed. And so my experience has been things happen 
uh, kids are emotional like all humans and so they don't always make the best judgment or decisions and well moment. we have to remember their frontal lobes are still developing right. <laughs> and so when they make a bad choice they a lot of them almost immediately regret right. it absolutely and that's that's the part that's important is that is teaching what to do differently next time so we spend time sitting with them and talking through the scenario and figuring out what did you do what could you have done differently and not just telling them what to do because it's really easy to sit there and tell you like hey well when you get angry instead of hitting him go just walk away take three deep breaths yeah, yeah. And talk talking at kids is fine i guess but it's not as effective as asking them what do you think you could have done differently letting them take some ownership and come up with their own solutions and potential alternatives next time. And it might be really surprising for you, Joseph, that the amount of times that Tony and I have sat with kids and asked them that question, we have to rein them back. Like, oh no, I think that's a little bit too much for you. You know? Yeah, if I suspended every kid that said that their consequence should be a suspension, we probably wouldn't have very many middle schoolers, you know, without a suspension on their record. That's almost always their go-to. And that's because that's the, the way that they were kind of brought up. And that's really, the thought process in their head, oh, I made a mistake, I'm probably gonna get suspended. And so we have to, as Miss Sandy said, we just have to rein them back in and go, okay, well, other than suspension, can you think of anything else that you might do to make it right? And then they kind of get around to like making amends. And, and their right. solutions are pretty creative. Like some of them I couldn't even have thought of, and I'm like, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and then it becomes a learning experience. And um, there has been a number of times where two students have an incident and then at the end of the whole restorative process, because it is a process, it doesn't happen instantly. Sometimes it can take weeks. Um, and two students will have multiple sessions together where they'll be talking through it and working through it. But a lot of times they come out the other end, friends. More times than not, probably. Because they're not running away from the problem, right? right? You're actually addressing the problem and that's what adults should be doing so you're fostering growth and maturity through this process of what i'm really seeing yeah and i think that it's interesting too because they typically find out that the kids that they're having problems with they have more in common with them than not right and so when you find that commonality and they make their own bond over that commonality the shift automatically kind of naturally organically changes right, to look for the positive right the silver linings yeah. yeah, what do we have? What are what are our similar similarities, and what do we have in common, and and what are our differences? Okay. And this sounds great, and I love it, and it seems like it works in a lot of instances. But I'm sure there's barriers, right? Like some things that get in the way. Well, one barrier that I can think of right away is the teachers or parents that think, well, what do you mean they don't have any accountability for doing something wrong? Yeah, the adults are are often the barrier. To be honest with you, we have I I spend more time, energy, and effort convincing the adults that the kids are capable of this and that the kids can handle this and that it will be okay. And then I do even dealing with the kids because the kids naturally just want to, you know, belong and they, yeah. they, they need to be accepted by their peers and all of that. So that part of it is really easy. Now it's convincing the adults in the situation that no, I don't have to suspend a kid or no, there doesn't have to be some extremely punitive consequence for that kid to learn the lesson and for it to not repeat, which I understand because as a, as a parent myself, if somebody hit my kid or harmed absolutely. my kid in some way, I'm absolutely going to be nervous and want to make sure my, my child is safe. That's my number one priority is my child's safety. So as an adult, like, yeah, sometimes we don't always think the most rational when our own kid's right. safety is it. The mama bear, papa bear comes mm -hmm. out. But, you know, we, they, at a certain point, we just have to trust that the, 
the kids will advocate and that um, we're aware of things that are going on. And sometimes we just keep a really close eye on it and we check in a lot. Well, and accountability and punitive don't have to go hand in hand. You can be held accountable for something without the punitive aspect of it. Yeah. I think, like I said, going back to what I said earlier, that a lot of times when the kids do something and they have a minute or two to sit and calm down and reflect, they almost immediately are remorseful and they regret. Yeah. And sometimes that, that regret and that remorse of thinking about how they acted and reacted and then that empathy part where we flip the situation and ask them, like, well, how would you feel if that was done to you? That, I think, is a lot more powerful than, than any suspension I can give. Oh, absolutely. Well, you're changing the character. You know, you're, you're building empathy is you know, what you're saying. Yeah. And the thing I think a lot of people don't realize with um, restorative justice is that it takes time. Everybody wants, like, the magic pixie dust. Like, he came to restorative justice, or she came to restorative justice, and she did the same thing. It must not work. Right. Well, I mean, if, again, if there is no magic bullet, if you're looking for a magic bullet, you're let me know when you find one. <laughs> I don't think it exists. If it exists, somebody's hiding it really, really well because right. we're all we're all searching, and and this is a process that as long as we have had kids in communal schools, we've been trying to figure out how to, you know, deal with you know conflict conflict resolution is is something that adults don't even do well Absolutely. in some cases so yeah of course it's not going to be a perfect solution for every scenario you know but at this point uh, i feel very lucky to be on a campus that has embraced this philosophy for a number of years anyways but even if we hadn't it's now state law so state law mandates that um most offenses I mean, pretty much 99% of offenses a student would commit at a school, um, they have to be met with some sort of restorative practice before we can suspend or even expel for certain things. Now, is that applicable to public charter schools, public uh, schools in general? or That is state law, so that is applicable to any public school. So at Somerset, Stephanie, we are a public charter, so we do follow um, all the, the state laws and any guidance from the Department of Education or the governor, that they are ultimately the ones that mandate um, what we do and how we operate. So, yeah, when, when there is a law that is passed by the state legislature that applies to schools, it also applies to us. I guess I only ask that because from my background growing up in a public school, not a public charter school, uh, the term restorative justice was never used and a lot more suspensions and expulsions. So from when I when I first stepped on here, I thought there was a big difference, but I'm hearing that a lot of public schools are utilizing the restorative program. Well, they have to, it's a law. Yeah, it's now mandated. You know, prior to last school year, um, it, it really wasn't. There were some schools, Cheyenne High School in, in the district was one that um, for the last five or six years has embraced restorative practices over there. Um, and they have shown a complete turnaround in their discipline and suspension rates have dropped dramatically. Um, so it really is one of those instances where uh, the legislature kind of got it right. It's a thing that, that's been working and they have enough data to prove that it works in Oakland and, and even here in the Valley with certain schools. So taking that and saying, hey, yes, a school must have a restorative justice program, I think is a step in the right direction for us as a whole in education. Well, and like you said earlier, Somerset, especially the Stephanie campus, we had a positive behavior program before the restorative justice, which basically was restorative justice before it was a law. 
or before that terminology, because again, it was based on how can the kids learn from their mistakes? How can they take ownership? How can they make those moral decisions on their own? And how do we how do we go about to to connect them with their feelings, with um, what may have triggered them? Different ways to handle the situation different. So it's not a new. It's just a new word. Yeah. And it's not even really a new word. It's just a new word here in Nevada. Yeah. School district. And definitely yeah, new to someone, I guess, for, for me coming into Somerset, it was a, a new word for me. But now I'm seeing how it's being utilized in more ways than I even thought, you know, in, in the public school system and, and for the better. Yeah, I think it's going to be an improvement. It's a process. You know, we're all still learning and growing with the process. And I'd love to say that, you know, we have it down and it's perfect, but it's definitely not perfect. It doesn't always work. Um, but we, the law mandates that we have options based on restorative justice and for things like uh, students getting into physical altercations, things that before in the old traditional system would have been mandatory suspensions and things like that, um, those are now met with mandatory restorative practice. Now, with that being said, that doesn't mean that a kid can come to school every single day and get in a fight over and over and over again and nothing will happen. Restorative justice is a step in the process. So once we have made an attempt to have a student participate in the restorative justice process and he or she, um, you know, then repeats the same behavior, if it's, uh, you know, within a, re a reasonable amount of time, we may or may not have them participate again. But I can tell you it's not going to be an, an endless cycle of a kid just doing the same behavior and, it, and our response to it. Um, just being the same every time. And that's what restorative practice mandates is that each situation is met um, and the consequences or how we react to that situation is tailored to that specific student and that situation. So when I look at a kid that's getting in fights constantly, then if I, the first time I might have a conversation and we might sit down and there might be some anger management programs and materials that we go through and lessons that we do together. But then if two weeks later he's in a fight again and he's punching another kid, right. like we're not going to just repeat that same process. Like, yes, eventually there are things that step up and the law allows us to move from restorative justice to traditional punitive measures if required. Well, and you have to have kid buy-in and you have to have parent buy-in or the whole process is Right. And I just, I just wanted to address that because I know there are some parents that automatically think, oh, great, now we're just giving kids a pass yeah. and they can just run around and do things over and over and over again and they're just going to get babied. And um, even some of the teachers used to have that saying, I can't tell you how many times we would hear the old joke from teachers is that, oh, we send them up to the office and they send them back five minutes later with a lollipop. Yeah, right. Like you guys are soft. Yeah. You know. And and I can assure you that's not the case at all. We we have to protect student privacy so we don't often divulge consequences or how we deal with those consequences to anybody other than the family because of FERPA. Right. Um, and so I can understand why from an outsider looking in that might be frustrating, but I can assure you that there, is, there are things beyond restorative practice. So once a kid has participated in restorative practice, if we deem that that practice was not successful, then we change tactics and try something else. And unfortunately, there are some kids that they only respond or some kids and families that only respond to the threat of suspensions or expulsion. Right. I kind of build on that because like we're talking about all the things but of what happens during restorative justice, like when they can be suspended, when they can't be suspended. But how do you, how do you lay the base down for this? Like the circles, can you explain how the circles work and how that builds this process? Yeah. And, and 
you're absolutely right. The circles are a huge part of it. Like restorative practices are, it's not just an answer to, um, to discipline problems. It's not meant to be that because we are more complicated as individuals than, than a single simple thing, which is why there's no magic bullet to this. So part of the restorative practice is teachers and fostering and building community in their classroom. So we do that through a process called circles. Uh, and that's really kind of like a class meeting, but it's held very circular. So the kids all sit circular. And back to that tribal. Um, yeah, very, very rooted in our tribal origins. Um, we use talking pieces and they pass things around and they get to share and connect with each other. Um, and it's really just that's really teaching one on one. When we think about teaching academics and things like that, we use the same system. What the teachers are doing in the classroom to teach that um, instruction to all the whole class, we call that tier one instruction. That is the exact same thing we're expecting with restorative practice. We don't want to just react to kids when they end up in negative consequences. We want to build community and interconnectedness and have kids understand each other and relate to each other um, because we know that the more that kid relates to another kid, the less likely they are to um, lose empathy and, and to be mean to another kid because they're going to know that person and relate to them. So what's here in the restorative justice part is this circle. Is that the building tier one, building tier two, building tier three? So it's actually circles can be involved in all three tiers. So really to kind of give people listening an overview of what the tier system is in restorative practice, tier one is everything that we do in the community to build community. So, so it's, it involves everybody. Yeah. So that's um, school events, um, language that we're using, how we connect with kids in the lunchroom. Everybody has an, an involvement and a buy-in for tier one. Whole class circles, um, all of those community building circles, that's all tier one that we're trying to build up community. Then tier two is how we respond to something that uh, involves two students harming or some sort of harm or relationship that's been damaged. We can pull a group of those group of kids and we can use a smaller conflict resolution circle to kind of get to the bottom of that and hopefully repair that relationship between those kids and resolve the conflict. Um, and then tier three would be how do we how do we respond to a student that's been removed from the community? So if a student's been suspended for a number of days or if a student um, has been expelled for a semester and they're coming back, tier three is how do we reintegrate that? Uh, individual back into our school community and their class community. So they're not labeled the bad kid like we were talking before. Right. And so the, a lot of that inv involves meeting with the kid, the parents, um, the teacher, and talking about that process, figuring out who's going to check with that kid to make sure that they're doing okay, letting that kiddo know that they don't have to talk about what happened. So that's one of the hardest things as a kid myself that was suspended right. a few times in school. Uh, one of the worst things was coming back to school that first day and everybody going, hey, what happened? Where have you been for the last three or four days? And, you know, the minute that I'm like, oh, I was suspended, then that leads to more conversation. Well, all the kids going to rumor that you're now the bad kid or you Or making still, judgments. Yeah, what have you. And so part of that tier three process is sitting with the kids and telling them like, hey, you don't have to talk about this. If somebody asks where you've been for the last couple of days, just tell them you're on vacation or... You're tell home. Them nothing at all. I, I didn't feel very well. I was sick. Or just right. tell them it's none of their business. Yep, it's none of their business. Right, right. You're building, I guess, another character quality is recognizing when to be vulnerable and the people to be vulnerable with. Yeah. You know, because sometimes we can share our story with those who can 
harm us more than help us. Yeah. And there's also the kids that like promote the the suspensions and you know all of a sudden their uh, cool level they think goes up and so you're in our group right yeah, yeah. you're wearing that badge of honor yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. so I think that's a really important thing is to understand these tiers because they all build on each other yeah and really just it's just like you said it's the same that we use as educators in the classroom tier one being general instruction tier two being more small group when we notice there's a deficit with a, a group of kids in a common deficit, we pull them in small groups to attack and and meet those deficits and build them back up so they can focus back in tier one. And then aggress. tier three would be if tier two is not being effective, then we meet with those kids one on one and give them individualized instruction to help meet those deficits. So it's the same process. If you think about that, if your tier two and tier three are both really, really strong, but your tier one is weak. Oh, boy. All we're doing is we're building kids back up and getting them back to grade level, but then because our tier one instruction is weak, now they're falling and falling and falling behind, and now they're back into tier two. So it's this cycle that happens. This is the same thing with restorative practices. If we spend all of our time repairing relationships and harm between two or three students or small groups of students, then they go back into the general classroom, and that classroom environment is toxic or not very good. All we're doing is putting them back into a situation where we're setting them up to fail again because now they're going to either fight with somebody else or argue with somebody else. So that tier one component is actually the most important part because in order to repair a relationship or to repair harm between two individuals, there has to be a relationship first. Absolutely. So if they haven't spent time developing and building that relationship in the first place, then there's really nothing to repair and it becomes almost impossible. Well, and that's where you get the kids that are resistant to it. And that's where you get the parents who are resistant because you don't know my kid. Yeah. When's the last time you spoke to my kid one-on-one? -on -one? Right. Or the kid, you know, middle schoolers, like, I don't, I don't like that kid anyway, so I don't care if that kid hates me. Yeah. And so because there's no relationship or foundation to build off of, and they now have had a conflict, they're almost in, a, in an even more negative um, place than they were to begin with. So now trying to get them back is 10 times harder. Right. So you have to just go back to that relationship, relationship, relationship. Yep. So Tony, kind of going back to that equitable comment that we made earlier, you know, sometimes fair isn't equal. It's not the same for everyone. How does it kind of work in restorative justice? Uh, yeah, I think that that's, it's an important concept and it's a, it's a concept that a lot of people struggle with, especially, uh, the older generation like myself. Hey, watch it there, Tony. I know, I meant me, not you. Okay. Um, I think that like trying to get people to wrap their heads around that is like half the battle sometimes with restorative practice. But if you think about it, even in our current criminal justice system, they don't always dispense the same consequences for the same crime. So for example, if I get a parking ticket uh, or a speeding ticket and I go before the judge, the judge has the autonomy um, regardless of if I plead guilty or I'm found guilty or whatever, the judge has the autonomy and sentencing to decide what the consequence is for me and how what I need to do to essentially make it right um, with the community. Sometimes that's paying a fine, but if I get a $400 speeding ticket and I'm already on public assistance or something like that or I'm not in a position, I can then have that conversation with a judge and say, hey, I, I don't have $400. And then you do community service. Right. They can give me community service or you can say, well, okay, if I can reduce the fine to this amount and then you can pay monthly payments for six months. They have lots of different options. And the point is that they tailor the response to my specific situation um, so that it, it, 
it can help me be successful. And that's really the same practice that we want to, or the same mindset we want to carry with discipline here at school. So we might have two students get in a fight and they might have very different consequences. Based on their personal situation. Yeah. And I, I know some kids want to get suspended. Some kids don't want to be at school. And if they're a kid that struggles with reading or they struggle with math and every time they get to that reading block or that mm -hmm. math class trigger and they just don't want anything to do with it. So they're looking for a way to get out. So sometimes the behaviors are um, an escape and it's task avoidance. They don't want to do math or they don't want to do reading. Um, and so they would rather get in an argument with a teacher or a power struggle over a pencil. But if you didn't know that kid and you didn't, have the equitable standpoint you would just give that kid a suspension just what they wanted to get right right yeah and if i didn't even take the time to to try to dig into the why why has this happened why did you do this why are we arguing over a pencil why? and that comes right back to building relationships and i think that's a really great place to start closing today because it comes down to the empathy aspect not only the empathy we're trying to build within our students but the empathy that we should have you know, just as a judge should have for anybody who's standing before him, because it's not an evil judge. Like, how can I make this criminal's life even harder? And not even criminal is a bad way to phrase it. Now, I'm, I'm kind of even catching myself not in the restorative justice mindset, but you know, taking a step away from seeing them as a criminal and seeing them as a real person, or a bad kid, you know? or a kid that is always in trouble. Yeah. And I think the restorative justice, like we said, to to wind it up, is just really to think about relationships, how to build them. What we can do to see that child so that everyone at, at our school has equal opportunity. Yeah, I completely agree. That's that's the mindset I, I have every single day is um, good kids make bad choices. <laughs> you know, there are no bad kids. Sometimes it's, it's just about choices. And when we separate the student from their choices and we help them um, make better choices, then that's really building the character in that kid. And they, they get to understand that we are here really truly to help them, not to label them or judge them um, because we're humans. We all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Right. And those, those children are going to have children of their own. Okay? So this is an idea that hopefully can just be fostered throughout generations. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Tony. Yeah. Really, thanks for being our guest. Really a pleasure to hear that. Absolutely. Anytime. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to you later.